Revelation chapter 1. And we'll be reading verses 4 through 8 this morning. As you know, last week we saw as John introduces the book of Revelation to us, it is the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's a, a revealing of Jesus. This book is about the Lord Jesus Christ. And I said that's the but see the take we're going to use on it. The approach is to let's learn about the Lord Jesus. And these next few verses will certainly not disappoint in that regard. So uh, in verses 1 through 3, we have the apostolic greeting and the promise of blessing to the one who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and those who keep the things which are written in it. So it's not just the hearers, but the doers of God's word that are blessed, as James says. And so we begin reading at verse 4. John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler over the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him, even they who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so. Amen. <clears throat> I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Amen. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we pray you would open our hearts and minds to your word and open your word to our hearts and minds, Lord. We desire to hear your voice speaking to us from the Holy Scriptures. Give me grace to preach your word correctly and give us all grace to receive that which your word declares, Lord. And I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts would be acceptable in your sight through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen. Interesting thing on this, you know, there's a saying, uh, our old friend uh, Richard Crum used to always say, you know, if you're going to go on a trip, what's the most important thing you need to know? And you know, most people would say, well, you know, uh, if you have enough money or where you're going, and he'd say, nope, nope, and but pretty soon he'd give up, and then he'd say, you need to know where you are, <laughs> okay? Uh, if you're going to go somewhere, you need to know where you start off. And that's true, you know, because if you're going to go... To Walmart, you don't need to pack your clothing and gear and everything into your car. Uh, but if you're going to be traveling across country or if you're going to be flying on an airplane or something like that to go to a far distance, either in this country or overseas, I just, you know, some of us have shipped off our kids to various locations. By the way, Seth and Noah got back safely and Chris and Sam did too. So uh, thank you for your prayers, those who were aware of that and praying. <clears throat> But you need to know where you are if you're going to go, because that'll, that'll give you some idea. Well, that's what John's doing here. He's letting us know where the churches were, where we are. But there's another thing that's really important, and I was thinking about that here in reference to this sermon, because this is what John is doing here. You need to know who you are. You know, particularly if you're going to be, let's say, flying on an airplane, if you go to the airport and uh, they say, uh, what's your name? You go, well, I don't know. You know, they're going to, well, do you have a ticket? Yeah, yeah, I do. What's the name of them? I don't know. They're not going to let you on the plane, okay? You need to know who you are. 
John is doing that here. He's letting us know who we are. More than that, he's letting us know who God is. He's telling us about the Lord. This really is a revelation of Jesus Christ. If you were paying attention when we read this, you see that there's a greeting, a, a, an apostolic benediction or blessing of grace and peace from the triune God. <clears throat> and so we need to know who our God is. And John describes God to us in a wonderful and unique way. And so it's John to the seven churches or the assemblies. The word church means, uh, you know, assembly. It's ecclesia comes from the Greek. Most people know this now, I think, but if you don't, it's okay. We'll learn it today. Um, ecclesia is a Greek word. Kaleo means to call. All right, that's the verb to call. Kaleo. Uh, probably our English is related to it. There's a, a K sound, a K and an L in there, and call has that, so probably because our languages are loosely related. It's probably our English, uh, Anglo-Saxon word comes from that, or was related to it in the Indo-European strain. But Kaleo, and then ek is out. We talk about that also in the exit, you know, to go out. So ek kaleo means to call out. And that's what the assembly was. In Athens, that's where the, that word probably was coined. The assembly, the people would meet and they would gather and they would be called out of their daily lives to assemble in the uh, uh, assembly place, the stadium, or other locations, and there they would have their their political meetings. They they had a uh, they tried to have anyway a pure democracy, and they did for a little while. Uh, they would make laws, vote on them, etc., and then they would send forth a fellow to proclaim whatever laws had been decreed by those who weren't citizens, or to those who weren't citizens and weren't a part of the ecclesia. And that fellow was called the carux. And in the New Testament, that's used of the word for a preacher, and uh, caruso is the word for to preach. It means to preach authoritative. There are other words used there. So the ecclesia uh, means the assembly. So he's writing here to the seven assemblies which are in Asia. And that's not where China is or India. This is Asia Minor, uh, modern-day Turkey. And it's actually not even that whole area. It's, it's a, an area in Turkey that was called by the Romans the province of Asia. And it takes up these seven churches. If you have a Bible map in your Bible... You might want to turn back and look and see. You see it's on the west coast of Turkey, and there we have this, the seven churches that are named in verse 11. Uh, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And they make kind of a circular route. Those cities are all close to each other, and so John is greeting those seven churches. They were the original recipients of this book. And so he greets them. John to the seven assemblies or churches which are in Asia, grace to you and peace. Those are things that only God can give. God gives grace and he gives peace. Um, you want to have the peace, as I think it was Matthew Henry said, you want to have the peace that comes through grace and you want to have the grace that comes from God that brings peace. Grace means favor, often defined as undeserved favor or unmerited favor. It means God treats you differently than what you deserve in and of yourself, and that's exactly true. So he wishes grace to them. Grace is something that is given to us from God, and also if you read the New Testament, it's very clear, grace is something that is operational within us by the Holy Spirit. So to receive grace from God doesn't just mean that he gives you favor, it means that he gives you that transformational favor. And this is what John is wishing for them. And we can tell from the nature of these letters that were written to the seven churches, that's exactly what's before them, the idea of God's favor, and for some of them, the need to change. Uh, for some of them, the need to persevere. But grace to you and peace 
And then note how he describes God, from the one who is and who was, and literally, and who is coming. Interesting title for God. Uh, from the one who is, that is, he is the everlasting, and who was, and who is coming. That is, he transcends time and eternity. The um, text in the Old Testament in Revelation, excuse me, in uh, Exodus chapter 3 we read of Moses when he was commissioned to go down to Egypt to deliver the children of Israel. God was commissioning him, and Moses said, we're told in, at verse 13, Then Moses said to God, Indeed, when I come to the sons of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? Let's know. They're going to ask who's, who it is that sent me. And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Moreover, God said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, The Lord, which in the Hebrew is, uh, well, it's Y-H-W-H, generally, nobody really is sure how it was pronounced, okay? Uh, but it seems it's probably Yahweh or possibly Yehovah. Um, but it's Yahweh is usually how it gets pronounced in modern circles today. Thus you shall say, the Lord, L-O-R-D, you notice in your English Bibles, if you look there, you'll see it's all capital letters for Lord. That stands for what's called the Tetragrammaton. Tetra, four grammaton letters. The four letters, that's the divine name. <clears throat> uh, Yahweh, or Yehovah. The name for I am is Aye. Aye, Asher, Aye. I am that which I am, or I am who I am. So he says you'll t to tell them that Yahweh uh, sent you. The Lord God of your fathers. And he says, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And that's an interesting statement there, because later when the Sadducees who denied the resurrection or any afterlife, they basically were like the JWs of their day. They just said, when you die, you cease to exist. So they lived lives of greediness and selfishness. And uh, Jesus rebuked them for that. He said, you do err not knowing uh, the scriptures, nor the power of God. And he told, quoted this text. He said, God said to Moses in the, the burning bush uh, passage, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He doesn't say, I was. He says, I am. He said, he's not the God of the dead. He's the God of the living. For all live unto him. So God here reveals himself as the existing one. And that because the, the, the verb aye, or the name aye, comes from, or it's related to the same stem as the Hebrew word uh, hayah, okay? So you're getting a Hebrew lesson today. Sorry, guys, I didn't plan on doing all this. It's the easiest way to explain it, okay? So hayah means to be, all right? Hayah, from that, if you say I am, that's aye in Hebrew. It's still the same root, they just modified a little bit to make it first person, okay? I, speaking. It means I am the one who is, I am the one who exists. Uh, and in this case, the eternal one. Okay? And in some Bibles, it's translated as the eternal one. I think in French they do that sometimes, uh, l'éternel, and in other languages I've seen that. Um, <clears throat> that That's how God describes himself. He transcends time. So this name that, that John uses, that from the one who uh, is and who was and who is coming, meaning that God is the everlasting one. He is the eternal one. Uh, this name and title of God is given to teach us that the Lord God Almighty transcends time and eternity. 
Uh, this is important for us to know in a book about the future events that were to happen and begin to unfold in John's day. It was for this declaration of his true deity uh, that the Judeans in, in the Gospel of John, when Jesus was there speaking, they wanted to stone the Lord Jesus Christ for blasphemy. If you remember, Jesus said, your father Abraham, that is the Jews were contending with him, and he said, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Then the Judeans said to him, you are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? They said, who do you think you are? Jesus said to them, most assuredly I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. They understood what he meant. Then they took up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, going through the midst of them, and so passed by. That's John 8, 56 through 59. He said to them, before Abraham was, I am. And so our Lord Jesus Christ is one with the Father. He partakes of the same eternity and of the essence of God. There's one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so John is letting us know this one God is the true God, and he transcends eternity. Again, really important in the context. Like, okay, this is good theological knowledge. It helps us in our daily lives to know that God's above all our problems and that nothing surprises him, even though it sometimes surprises us by either way of joy, sometimes of sorrow. God's sovereign over all things. He transcends time. He created time. It says in Hebrews, in the first two verses, that the ages were created by the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ, the Son of God, who, who is eternal with the Father and the Holy Spirit, and that what well, we have to call the mystery of the Trinity, because it's beyond our abilities to fully intellectually comprehend it, Christ created sequential time. That's what the ages of the ages are. And he transcends that. He is from everlasting to everlasting. Uh, God is a different sort of being than we are. You know, we are finite. He's not. And so there, there are certain things about him that we would not know unless he was pleased to reveal to us. One of the things he's revealed is that he is the one who is and who was and who is coming. So Jesus lets them know this, and John is telling us here, and it seems to apply to God the Father, because uh, in the context he's going to talk about the Lord Jesus, but first he speaks of the, the, the Holy Spirit, but in a very unique way. If you notice, it says, Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. The seven spirits is clearly a reference to the Holy Spirit, because He's in the conveyance or the desire or the apostolic wish or, uh, or benediction of grace and peace, that comes from God. No creature is going to be put in that place. That's why when Paul and the other apostles write their letters and say, grace to you and peace from God the Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ, you can't put a mere creature's name in that declaration. And so here when John is saying this, as some, and I mentioned it last week, sometimes the seven spirits are considered, well, maybe these were the seven angels of the churches or something. Uh, grace and peace is being wished to the church by these. And so this is really the Holy Spirit being looked at in a very unique way. Now, there's only one spirit, but he has diversities of gifts and operations. There are seven churches being addressed, and the Holy Spirit is here signified, that is, we have a symbol, symbolic language, the seven spirits are which are before his throne. It's clearly a reference to God the Holy Spirit in his sevenfold capacity to minister to and enlighten the churches 
because it would be blasphemous to put the name of a mere creature with the Father and the Son in the pronouncing of the blessing of grace and peace to the churches. And clearly it is the Spirit who speaks to the churches at the end of each one of the letters to the churches. Uh, it says, he who has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Okay, That's chapter 2, 7, verse 11, 17, 29, chapter 3, verse 6, 13, and 22. So if you look at the end of each of the seven letters, it says, he that has ears, let him hear, that is, he must hear, what the Spirit is saying to the churches. So this picture of the seven spirits before the throne of God, I believe, is pretty clearly a reference to the one Holy Spirit, who uh, is speaking to the churches, but he speaks to them as individuals. In 1 Corinthians, if you have your Bibles, if you want to turn there, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, when Paul speaks at verse 4, uh, he says, There are diversities of gifts. This is uh, 1 Corinthians 12, 4. There are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are differences of ministries, but the same Lord. And there are diversities of activities, but it is the same God who works in all, works all in all. <clears throat> but the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. For uh, to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, to another the word of knowledge uh, through the Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the same Spirit. To another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, discerning of spirits. To another, different kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues. But one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually as he wills. For as the body is one and has many members, but all the members of that one body, being many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and have all been made to drink into one Spirit. So we see this picture here uh, non-symbolically portrayed in, in Corinthians of the Holy Spirit being sevenfold in his ministry. John represents it, or the Word of God represents him in Revelation, the seven spirits. But I think it's pretty clear because grace and peace are being extended through the Spirit here that's mentioned. It's a reference to the Holy Spirit and, and telling us some things about him, how he works individually. So, and remember in chapter 1, verse 1 of Revelation, we're told that the book is symbolic. He sent and signified it. That word semeo means to show by signs. So we have some symbolic language being used right at the beginning. So the Holy Spirit is represented as being sevenfold because that's how he works in the churches. He works individually and personally in each congregation. So we have the salutation of grace and peace properly given as being from Jesus Christ also, by whom grace and truth came, in John 1.17 we're told that, and who is the Prince of Peace himself, Isaiah 9.6. He is the Sar Shalom in Hebrew. I think most of us know the word Shalom. Sar means prince. Sarah is princess, or Sarah. So, Sar uh, is the masculine of that. Sar Shalom. Jesus is the Prince of Peace. And so, grace and peace are very properly <coughs> extended to the churches through the Lord Jesus Christ. And the reason why I think John puts it in this order, because usually the usual order is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, like in the baptismal formulation in Matthew 28 and elsewhere, is because he has quite a few things to say about Jesus. So, he saves it for the end, I think. That's why. The order is a little different than what we're used to. At verse 5, he says, And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. <coughs> Christ's words are true. 
his testimony was confirmed. Uh, the firstborn from the dead. So we learn some things about him. He is the faithful witness. He's the firstborn out from among the dead, literally. That is, he can be trusted. Everything he says is good. And he rose from the dead. Firstborn means he's the first risen, never to die again. And the ruler over the kings of the earth. It's really important if you're living in the, in the first century, uh, at the time of the um, uh, Decian persecution, um, we're just remember we talked last week about the Roman Empire being the world power of its day, setting its target on the church to destroy the church, to kill Christians, to burn their books, and to burn those who were found with them. And you're a Christian, you have to hide in order to meet. It's the same is true in some places in the world today, even. To be told, no, Jesus is the ruler over the kings of the earth. Christ is sovereign. He is the one that's in control. What a message for that first century church. What a message for us today. You know, there's a lot of political things going on constantly. You know, we get caught up in it. Sometimes we lose friendships over it. And all kinds of things happen in the political realm. Because there's a lot of contending. There's a lot to contend for uh, in our society today. But... Jesus Christ is the ruler over the kings of the earth. We need to first go to him. We need to submit ourselves to him. And even when kingdoms rage and kings rage, tyrants, we don't need to be with uh, we don't need to be distracted with fear. John sent a message, or I should say God sent a message through John to the churches that Jesus Christ is the ruler over the kings of the earth. Christ is in control. We need to bear witness to that. And that's in the early church. To say Jesus was Lord was a death sentence in many areas because of emperor worship. I mentioned this before. To show your loyalty to the Roman Empire, uh, you were required to throw incense on a little burner, some coals set up in front of a statue uh, or a bust of the emperor. And just to show you were a loyal Roman, you could throw the incense on it. And all you had to do was say, Caesar is Lord. That was it. That showed that your religion wasn't being formulated to cause rebellion. Christians wouldn't do that. Said we can't burn incense to an idol. First of all, secondly, Jesus Christ is Lord, not Caesar. In the way you're asking it, because um, it was under Nero and others, and particularly in the Eastern Empire, they began to talk about the deity of the emperor. You know, they they said he was descended from the gods, etc. Christians wouldn't do that, and so it was considered a death sentence. If you've ever read about the martyrdom of Polycarp that took place, I believe it was about 110 uh, A.D., Polycarp was an old man, and he was required to do that, and the procurator that was there was in Smyrna, one of the cities mentioned here, and he would not say Caesar is Lord, and the procurator didn't want to kill him. They did, he didn't want to kill him. They knew, they found him. He was outside of town, staying with some, some friends. And he was an old man, probably in his 90s at least. And when they went to arrest him, the, the soldiers that were sent there uh, from the government, when they, they found him, they rode there and uh, they were going to take him back to Smyrna. And they did. But he went out. We have a detailed record of, of his martyrdom. But he went out and met him and told him, he said, Look, it's a long way back. He said, why don't you come in and have a meal first, okay? Uh, let's eat, and then we'll, then we'll go back. And he knew why they were there and what was going to happen. But they were like, well, okay, we are hungry. So they, he fed them and was kind to them, and they were gentle with him, brought him back. 
and the procurator was uh, when they assembled in the, in the uh, stadium, and it was filled, and a lot of people at that time thought Christians were baby killers and incestuous people and all kinds of horror, drank blood and all kinds of things like that were the rumors that the wicked were spreading about them, but people that knew any Christians knew that wasn't true. The procurator was like, just say Caesar is Lord, throw the incense on, you can do it, okay, and then you can go home. We don't want to kill you, you're an old man. So I'm not going to do it. So finally the procurator said, all right, just say away with the heathen. Okay, just say that. So, meaning, you know, away with the Christians. So Polycarp looked at the crowd and he went, away with the heathen. As far as that's not what I meant. And Polycarp was like, I did what you asked. Anyway, they eventually, they did burn him. He died uh, a painful death if he went to be with the Lord and to the rest of the saints in Asia Minor, about a generation or 20 years or so after this book was written, um, they understood what it meant that Polycarp had stood his ground. Jesus was Lord. He, Jesus, is the ruler over the kings of the earth. That has to be known and acknowledged and lived. So in all of our political life and all of our strivings, whatever we're doing, we need to remember the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the ruler over the kings of the earth. So John, in telling the church this, and by the way, you know, Polycarp was aware of the book of Revelation. He was aware of these words. He knew that Jesus is the ruler over the kings of the earth. He's the chief. But the note, John doesn't stop there. John says that to him who loved us, if you see that as he's describing Jesus, he is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler over the kings of the earth. To him, now he's speaking about him, to him, he's getting ready to ascribe glory to him, to him who loved us, now, that doesn't mean it's over and done with. It just means he's always loved us. It's an aorist uh, verb in Greek, which just means it's looked at at a point in time, meaning it's always been there. To him who loved us and still does, but the one who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. Jesus loved us, and that love was active. And that's why he came. And so John, keep in mind, John is the one who was there at the cross, the one who wrote this, I believe, pretty clearly. It's the Apostle John. He names himself, and some said, well, it's a very different style than his gospel. And it's like, yeah, of course it is. Read the subject matter. Of course this is different than the gospel. But it's, it's pretty clear. John identifies himself because this is prophecy, and so he is willing to, and it's required, I think, it, for verification that, you know, this is John that wrote this. It's going to happen. He was there when Christ died, and John was very much aware of Jesus' love. He refers to himself in his gospel as the disciple whom Jesus loved several times uh, he refers to himself that way but jesus loved us and note that he doesn't just say love me he's talking here to the believers to those who are the servants he sent and signified it uh, to his servants uh, that jesus loves us loved us with an everlasting love and he washed us from our sins in his own blood it's by the blood of jesus christ that our sins are cleansed you know, some of you, if you've been working out in the fields or doing, you know, mechanical work or whatever, and you get all grubby, boy, it's so nice to get clean, isn't it? You know, you should be able to go in and, and just get washed and clean. Uh, it's nice, you know, and then to have clean garments to put on. What a blessing that is. This is what John's talking about here. Christ is the one who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. John was there at the cross. He knew what he was writing about. He actually saw the blood coming from the wounds of Christ. He heard his cry when Jesus said, uh, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? 
I also heard Jesus toward the end say, it is finished. He knew what it meant. And John, in his own experience, realized Christ died to take away our sins. We've been washed in his blood. And not just that, but has made us kings and priests to his God and Father. Christ is king. He's ruler over the kings of the earth. And he's made us to be kings. We are kings under Christ. And so, wait a minute. Here you're some insignificant in the eyes of the world Christian. You have no power in this world. And God calls you a king. You have authority. Now, first and foremost, it means you need to subdue yourself. You know, kings go to war in the, in the Bible very clearly. All right. David got in trouble because he didn't go to war when he was supposed to as a king. That happens to us a lot, too. We need to fight against our own selves at times. Our own flesh needs to be subdued. We need to go to God, confess our sins. We need to do uh, and follow through on the means of grace, reading God's word, gathering with Christians, singing his praise, hearing the gospel preached. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, Paul said. How shall they hear without a preacher? Preaching is necessary. And so say, well, that's why it's called the foolishness of preaching, or sometimes the foolishness of the thing preached. All right, God is, would have his word preached, and he uses that as a means of grace. That's why it's important to be in church, and at other times when the word is being taught or preached. But we're kings. First we use the means of grace, we subdue ourselves, but then also we are told to take dominion. That doesn't mean that we're going to, you know, bust up everything and make sure all the political parties are, you know, uh, following, you know, Presbyterianism. I'd be okay with that, but that's probably not God's plan, all right? Um, to be kings under Christ means that we preach the gospel, we witness to people, we bring Christian ethics into our vocations. When things are done that are wrong, we speak up about it. Why? For the cause of Christ. And most of all, we go to God in prayer, because if you know, we're on Tuesday nights we're studying Solomon, and we're looking this week at the prayer of Solomon, <clears throat> or well, we looked at it last week, and we're going to be looking at it a little more this week, the prayer of Solomon, when the temple was dedicated, kings lead their people in prayer. And one of the things we need to do, the way we take dominion, is by going to God. What, what did Christ teach us in the Lord's Prayer? What do we say? Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Get the on earth part there? Uh, your kingdom come. And remember I mentioned before, those are imperatives. It's not just saying, yeah, your kingdom's going to come. That's a, a, a declaration, and it is a, a cry for help, but it's an imperative. Generally, that's the command form of the verb, telling someone to do something. This is a imperative of necessity, needing help. Your kingdom must come. Your will must be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's how Christ taught us to pray. So this idea of dominion, it means that the gospel of Christ would be spread throughout the world, and not just, you know, uh, to preach so somebody makes a quote-unquote decision, and so we take a scalp and hang it on our spiritual watch. It means that men and women would be converted to Christ, their lives would be changed, and they would begin to have God's word written in their hearts and live different lives in their homes, in their individual lives, and in their jobs or in school, wherever they are. So this is what he's called us to, to be as kings. And as priests, we definitely go to God in prayer. We're first also to offer the sacrifice. Remember Romans 12? Present your bodies a living sacrifice. In Hebrews, it talks about the sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving that we're to offer. It talks about good works and charity, charity sharing with others. 
So with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. So as priests were to offer sacrifices first ourselves, and then also to give God thanks and praise, that sacrifice of praise. That's what we're to do that. In this book, we'll see that the prayers of the saints are like incense, or they're portrayed as incense before the throne. So as priests, we pray to God. So he didn't just uh, notice us. Christ changed us and brought us out of death, cleansed us, and made us kings and priests to God and his Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Now he started off in verse 5 saying, To him who loved us. He's talking about Jesus here. What, what a declaration of the true deity of Christ. He mentions God the Father. And when he says to him, some would say, was that God the Father? No, the context he's talking about Christ, but clearly it includes the Father and the Holy Spirit also. But to Jesus it says, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So he ascribes to Jesus the glory that can only be given to God. Because Jesus Christ is God manifest in the flesh. And then he brings us to the future, because that's what this book is about. So he takes us all the way to the end. He says, Behold, he is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him. So this isn't talking about the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D., as some try to say today. Because there, it's it, it 70 A.D., there were many saw Jesus come in judgment on the city. Jesus even told the high priest, You will see the Son of Man coming in glory. Okay, well, when did they see that? Well, when the city was destroyed. There's more than one coming. But this, I believe, is clearly a reference to the second advent because he says every eye will see him. All men are going to be raised. Everyone who has lived on this earth, saved and unsaved. The saints will be raised. The dead in Christ will rise first. And we who are alive and remain will be caught up. And we'll all meet the Lord in the air. And then Christ will come back and all the other dead will stand before God and they will be judged. We'll be present there. Our judgment took place at Calvary. We will give an account of ourselves, we're told elsewhere in Scripture. But Christ is coming again, and every eye will see him. That's 100% of all humanity. You know, we read about Julius Caesar. You're going to see Julius Caesar someday. Sad to say, there's no evidence that he ever got right with God. But, you know, we, we mentioned Polycarp, okay? That's a strange name. There you go. You know, you, some of you are younger when you have children, you think when you're Spouse is saying, what should we name our child? Suggest Polycarp, okay? I'm sure, you know, he won't be made fun of in school at all with that name, okay? Uh, but it's a good name. There are people who have named their children Polycarp because he's an awesome brother in Christ, you know, and, and in one sense a true saint of the Lord, not in the Roman sense, but uh, somebody that really truly followed Christ and bore witness to him. You're going to see Polycarp someday. You're going to spend eternity with him if you're a Christian. Paul the Apostle. James, John, Luke, all the saints we read about in the New Testament, all the people we hear about in church history uh, that love the Lord. You're going to see them. Every eye will see him, uh, even those who pierced him. So he says the, the people that, that were there when Christ died, they will see him. Even those who pierced him. Now in Zechariah, it refers to Christ coming, I believe, in Zechariah 12, 9, and 10. There in the Old Testament it says, And it shall come to pass in that day that I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. And I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication. That is prayer, seeking the Lord. And then here's an interesting statement. This is Zechariah chapter 12. Okay, I believe it's uh, verse, verse 9 still. He says, um, and they shall look upon me 
whom they have pierced. And they shall mourn for him, now it's talking in the third person there, as one mourneth for his only son, and shall be in bitterness for him as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. There will be repentance, he says, but they shall look upon me, he says, whom they have pierced. John says, on that day, every eye will see him, even they who pierced him. Now, when Christ was crucified, if you remember, he prayed for those who were crucifying him. He said, um, they, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Later we see the centurion and the, the group of soldiers that were with him, the squad that he had. We see them confessing that truly this was a righteous man, truly this was the Son of God. I believe that centurion and the others that were with him had a change of heart because christ prayed for them christ doesn't pray for someone to be forgiven and they don't get forgiven okay those men were changed it was others that were sent out from Pilate that went and then pierced his side they're all going to see it they'll see him so he's saying that everyone is going to see every eye will see him and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him all the heathen all the nations of gentiles they will see him and they will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. And so, lest we be overwhelmed by that thought, of, yes, Jesus is coming. But John's putting things in perspective. He's showing them where they are. Yes, you're living in a time of persecution. Who you are, you're kings and priests. And he shows them what their future is. Christ is coming again. These things that we're enduring right now are temporary. Yes, they're real and they're severe and they're painful. But Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords. And in one sense, it, particularly at verse 7, nobody's getting away with anything. This idea that, well, why aren't the wicked punished? When Christ returns, no one's going to be saying that. And also, when all secrets of all hearts are revealed and we see what was really going on in the hearts and minds of people, no one's going to question God's judgments for sending the wicked to the lake of fire. Once we see what sin really is, we've seen it in ourselves, we begin to see it, but God, I don't think, even shows us the complete extension of how deep our, our depravity is that we fall into despair. But ours is being, has been forgiven as, and is being purged away and cleansed. But for the wicked, when their hearts and minds are open and their motivations and all the things going on in them are shown to be what they are, the wickedness and the hatefulness and the ugliness and the filth of sin is going to be so clearly manifested on that day in the presence of the Holy God at the great white throne judgment as described in this book. No one's going to question, well, well, why did that person get sent to hell? There's going to be no question about it. The only thing that's going to be said is God is just and praise God for his justice uh, because we'll see that the wicked, those who die in their sins, uh, they deserve that punishment. Right now it's hard because we don't see you know, the extent, the full extent of how wicked wickedness is, and also humanity is joined by many bonds in this present life. You know, we have relatives and friends sometimes that are unsaved, and the idea of them perishing, but I do know that, you know, so you want to pray for them, you don't know, it might be your prayers that God uses to bring them about. They may be one of God's elect. While there's hope, where there's life, there's hope. But on Judgment Day, no one's going to question God's judgment and say why did he do that it'll be very clear exactly why he does it now those of us who are in glory will be a testimony to god's grace and it's like why did this person get to glory it'd be because jesus christ loved them and god had elected them and christ died for their sins and that's why they're saved 
God will get all the glory. And so just to cap it off at verse 8, the Lord lets us know, or I believe this is the Lord Jesus Christ speaking, He says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Who's in control of history? It's not Caesar. It's not these crazy people that are running around wanting to persecute Christians. Jesus says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I started this, I'm going to finish it. Okay, He's the one that's in control of history. Says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come. And then he adds the phrase, the Almighty, Hapantakrator is the Greek word. Panta means all, krator means power. Almighty, the Almighty. So he describes this. This is his letter. We're, you know, I could say we're just working through the introduction here in the, this first chapter. This is the, the letter. This is the introduction. He's letting us know who's in control of history. Super important for the original recipients of this book. Super important for us to know this. Jesus Christ, with God the Father and the Holy Spirit, is in control of history, your history, my history, all history, 100%. And so the idea, that, well, what are we supposed to do? How am I to live my life? Well, if he's the one that's in control 100% of history, and he put you in time now, you need to know who you are, where you are, and where you're going, and then serve him with every aspect of your being as he gives you opportunity. If you're at work, do the best job you can. If someone says, wow, you did a great job, let them know. Tell them. Well, you know, it's because of Jesus. You do something nice for somebody, you help them out, and they go, wow, thank you. You need to tell them. Well, you know, it's because of the Lord Jesus Christ. He changed my life. And sometimes they'll say, what do you mean? I say, well, I wouldn't be doing this if I wasn't a Christian, you know, like when you're helping somebody change a tire, you know, or fixing their brakes or something like that, okay? Uh, you know who you are there when I say that. Um, you know, there's different things that go on. When, you, when we help people, we do good works, we need to do it in the name of the Lord because Jesus is the one that matters. You matter also. You are a king and a priest before God. And so let's serve the Lord effectively. And in our prayers, we're to pray according to the will of God. So what are we to pray for? Lord, bring this about in my life. I want to be the man, if you're a woman, you can say the woman. I want to be the person you want me to be. I want to be a true Christian. Whether it ends in martyrdom or I just live my, a long life or a short life, however it works out, I want to be your person. Because the only thing that really is going to matter on that day is whether I have and how I have served you. So Lord, bring it about, Lord Jesus Christ. These verses we've just looked at pretty clearly tell us He's able to do that. And if you read the Bible, it's pretty clear he's willing to do it. So, beloved, be a king and be a priest. Go to God and ask for help. Let's pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word that it's true. We thank you for this uh, section of your, your scriptures, Lord. And we pray you'd write it in our hearts and minds. And again, help us to remember who we are. And we thank you, Lord, for letting us know where we are, even as you let these first century saints know where they were. And we thank you, Lord, for telling us where history is heading, that you are coming again, and we will see you, and we'll be with you. And so, Lord, prepare our hearts, we pray, by your grace, and give us grace this day and all the days of our lives to serve you, and by your Spirit working in us, to serve you effectively. And we thank you for that grace and that peace that only you can give, Heavenly Father. This we ask in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.